Welcome to Grace Spaces. We are a production of the American Baptist Churches of Connecticut. Join us on the second Monday of each month as we have a grace-filled conversation with a fellow sojourner. I am your host, Reverend Jamie D. Crumley. Let's get into our conversation for today. Hello, Grace Spaces listeners. Today, we are joined in conversation by the Reverend Miriam Samuelson Roberts. Miriam spent the first half of her childhood in semi-rural Iowa and the second half in Atlanta, Georgia, before she moved to Minnesota to attend St. Olaf College. After college, Miriam worked at St. Olaf as an admissions officer and career advisor before making her way to Yale Divinity School. Miriam completed her internship at Augustana Lutheran in West St. Paul, Minnesota, and was called to Westwood Lutheran Church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota in 2017. She lives in Minneapolis with her husband, Daniel, her daughter, Esther, and their pug, Merlin. And I'm so grateful to have you on Grace Spaces today, Miriam. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, really grateful to be here. So, Miriam, to start off, it would be great if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your own first experiences with faith. My parents are both ordained pastors in the Lutheran Church, um, which maybe I'll touch on this later, but initially kind of made me not want to be a pastor and not want to um, do faith day in and day out uh, as I do now. But uh, that's that's a whole other story. But my first, so yeah, I think my first um, faith experiences were a lot around um, actually the institution of the church because I spent a lot of time there. Um, my brother and I would hang out after church and eat the donuts that were left over in the kitchen. And, um, you know, when we were kids, of course, we saw this as, oh, so boring. Mom is talking to everyone. When are we going to get out of here? But in retrospect, we had so many holy conversations with um, people at church who were kind of sticking around. Uh, my mom's church that we were at for a long time was located in downtown Atlanta. Um, and a lot of people who were struggling with homelessness would hang out with my brother and I after services because that was the place that they were uh, felt most safe. And that was where they had food and that was where um, they could meet people who um, accepted them as they were without judgment. So. Um, we had those, you know, those institutional church communities. I also, my parents had other friends who were pastors. Um, and there was a particular community in Minnesota, um, where I live now and where uh, a lot of my extended family lives. It's common to have a little cabin up north. Um, and so we have some pastor friends who have cabins up north and we would spend summers there. Uh, even when we lived in Atlanta, we would drive 24 hours to be with them. Um, and and these sort of pastors who were not my parents, but were my parents' age, were also great mentors for me um, and showed me kind of what it was to live out your faith and to like sing hymns around a campfire and just have that be kind of a, a normal part of your life. That that really influenced me too. Great. Thank you so much for sharing. And I would love to talk a little bit more about what led you to pastoring after this experience of being raised in a clergy household? And you did say that those experiences shaped you. 
what was the path that you were on before choosing to come to Yale? And then kind of what finally sealed the deal for you and led you down the path to divinity school? So, yeah, like I mentioned, I, I thought having two pastors as parents was like, uh, I, I don't want to be a pastor. I see, um, how the sausage is made. And I, I don't know if that's what I want to do. Um, but, and, and also I think I, I went through a phase where I wasn't quite sure if, um, the church or Christianity was really my faith home either. Um, and I think that was important for me to take on that identity for a bit. And for a time, it was mostly late high school, early college. Um, yeah, I just thought, you know what, this church has done a lot of damage. And I'm, as I'm, as I'm learning <laughs> about world history, I'm learning all a lot. I, I guess I kind of saw that the church had done a lot of harm and it made me question, has the church done more harm than good? Um, so that was good, I think, for me to live in that for a while and question that because it helped me actually see some of the pain that the church has caused. Um, that now in my ministry, as I am rooted in the church, I can be really aware of that and not uh, turn away from that, but turn toward that and say, wow, yeah, the, the church has broken some trust. And it's important for us to, as as people who work in churches, to, to be really aware of that um, and tend to that pastorally and without an agenda of trying to make the church look good, but actually um, to heal, to help people heal and to be a healing presence. As to your actual question, how I how I got to seminary and got into the ministry, um, I think so. I was in after I graduated from college. I worked in admissions and um, also as a career counselor. And I and I knew that after and that I wanted to go back to grad school. And I thought I was going to do social work. Um, and I had these two mentors of mine who were, one was the campus pastor at St. Olaf where I worked at the college after I graduated. So they were now my colleagues and the other was a social work professor. And to get coffee with them, they were both friends with each other from time to time. And I was talking to one of them and I said, you know, I think, um, you know, my ideal job after I get my degree in social work would be if I could, um, you know, maybe counsel people individually, but also work with groups and um, maybe work with groups of people organizing things who are passionate about things. Maybe I would also do some public speaking or writing. And, you know, they just looked at me and were like, I think you just want to be a pastor. <laughs> so uh, that kind of set off my journey of, you know what, maybe I, maybe I could actually, I think leading up to that, I had come back to the church as an institution that had come back to Christianity as a place that I could root my identity. Um, and, and I think that comment really, uh, spurred me to look into, you know what, do, do I actually feel called to do this? And I'm just not admitting it to myself. So, and then about a year later, um, I was, I, about a half a year later, I was applying to divinity schools. And then a year later, I was found myself on the campus of Yale Divinity School with you. It's so fascinating because you were doing career counseling and then basically you were career counseled. Yes. <laughs> and that was right for you. And I yeah, think it's yeah. the need that no matter what stage we're in in our lives, that we 
always need mentors and we sometimes need mentors who do the exact same thing that we do, whether those are peers or people who are a little bit further down the road who can point to the things that are that seem so obvious after we hear them, but that we can't even see right in front of us. I think that's amazing and kudos to you for being able to hear that and not being kind of too afraid to step into that call because I imagine having come from a family with two clergy people, you knew some of the the risks and rewards of ministry and you could have turned and gone the other direction. So I think it's very much to your credit that you went down that path. Mm, yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about what you said about, especially as late in your late teens and early 20s, I think a lot of people can relate to this, not necessarily feeling like Christianity could be your faith home. Can you say a little bit more? I, I know you talked about historically the damage that the church has done, but can you say a little bit more about why you were struggling so much with this idea of calling yourself a Christian or being a Christian? Yeah. Yeah. So I, there's a couple of things personally for myself, but then also, yeah, like I said, sort of the observing how other people had been hurt by the church, but um, I identify as bisexual and I also identify as a strong feminist. Um, And those were two conversations that I just sort of wondered about in the church. You know, are the, what are the conversations around um, LGBTQ people and what are conversations around um, women and empowerment? And obviously the church has, um, the church is, when I say the church, obviously I mean like super broadly, has done maybe I think poorly around those two things from my perspective. I think there are um, ways that I think the church has used the Bible and faith to shame women or sort of like stay in your, stay in your lane kind of a thing that didn't feel very empowering to me. Um, and then especially around LGBTQ people, there's a lot of pain there. Um, and I was starting to feel that pain too and kind of feeling shut out. Um, my church, the Lutheran church, the ELCA, um, even though that is the most progressive um, theologically progressive branch of the Lutheran church, did not ordain LGBTQ people until 2009. And I was in college from 2004 to 2008. So um, even if I had been discerning a call to ministry, it wouldn't have been an option really for me. Um, And I, yeah, so, so there's definite, definite pain around that and definite questioning of what would, what would my place in this be? And honestly, for me, there are people in my denomination who are amazing trailblazers and had had been um, paving the way to LGBTQ inclusion, especially around ordination of queer clergy far before 2009 and had found communities that supported them as um, people who were becoming ministers and who also were queer. So I like am forever indebted to them for the work that they have done laying that groundwork and before them, women who were not allowed to be ordained um, until 50 years ago, I think in my denomination, we're approaching the 50th anniversary here in a couple of years. So um, without them, I would not be a pastor as, as a queer woman. And I, I am so grateful and indebted there. Um, but for me, I, I just didn't see a way forward into being a pastor in this church until 2009, when my denomination 
um, decided to allow LGBTQ people to be pastors. And then it was then that for myself, I said, oh, there, there is a place for me here. I can actually engage um, with this church. So I say that partially to share my own journey, but also to say that those public decisions really matter. And when I look at my friends who are LGBTQ pastors, and when I think about my friends of my generation and before who are women, I cannot imagine the church without them. I really cannot. They have brought me and their congregations and so many people new life and new ways of seeing the gospel, um, especially people who also have been marginalized and also perhaps have felt left out by the church. Um, I'm seeing so much important ministry being done by these people. Um, so it's my hope that our churches would all, I mean, my, my denomination has tons of work left to do on those two issues and beyond. Um, and it's my hope that our churches would continue to open their doors and open conversations um, about who should be in ministry because I've seen so many gifts in my fellow LGBTQ pastors um, and what they're bringing to the church right now. Thank you so much for sharing about your own experience with the church and your own journey with Christianity, especially based on the ways that what you're doing right now was foreclosed to you before 2009. Or I think about the ways that in certain denominations that there are people who are ordained who are women or LGBT or, you know, fall into some area of difference and are not able to fully be ourselves or say what it is that we have to say. And so what I'm wondering about is, I think, is the unique testimony that queer folks bring to the church? Like, what does it look like for the church to do more than just kind of lip service? You know, okay, there's a space for you here, but to be radically changed by the queer folks who make the church the church. Yeah, there's an interesting, um, as I listen to my peers, because we are often, I think I'm a part of an association within the Lutheran church of queer pastors and Often something we talk about is what are the unique gifts that queer pastors bring. And one of them I hear over and over again is when you've been marginalized, you know Jesus in a way that is hard to know when you haven't been marginalized. And, that, and all of us have you know, been marginalized in different ways. But that, that experience of knowing what it's like to be um, told that you are not welcome is a really, really important um, perspective in reaching out to other people who have also been told that they aren't welcome. And um, I've also heard, and I would share in this as, as a person who's bisexual and I'm married to a man and you know I've loved women and men, so it's, it's a confusing identity, I think, for people who like things to be black and white. But in also talking um, with my trans siblings or sort of people who don't fall within the traditional gender binary, we've been talking about how, um, how valuable it is to be able to live in these in-between spaces, in these in-between identities that aren't black and white in a world that's so comfortable with certainty. So much of what um, being people of faith is about is being comfortable with uncertainty and living into spaces that are not certain. Um, 
I have a friend who is trans who uh, has a beautiful way of putting this. And, you know, he says, God created uh, light and God created darkness. But isn't the sunset one of the most beautiful parts of God's creation? And God created land and God created sea. But aren't beaches some of the most lovely parts and valuable parts of God's creation? And these, these sort of in-between identities, which um, I think we as a larger society are just starting to have conversations about. Um, and that Gen Z, even I think more than millennials, are going to lead the way on teaching us. Um, what it means to to have gender be fluid and not not black and white as we usually think of it. And anyway, so I, I think there's theological value to that as well. And so right now, I feel like in terms of feminism, we're really at a place where it's no longer sufficient to think about feminism as just being about cisgender, that means women who identify as the gender that they were assigned at birth, for those who aren't familiar with that term. But it's not just about cisgender women. um, And it's not just about, you know, white middle class women with certain amounts of education and access to resources, but that feminism has to talk about all the areas of difference, which include sexuality, which include social class, which include race, which include not identifying on the binary at all. And so what do you see as the place of feminism in terms of where the church is today? Do you feel like you're able to um, boldly assert in your preaching and teaching these sorts of more radical feminist visions and ideologies? Yeah, a couple random thoughts about that that hopefully will come together into one coherent thought. Um, one of the the scholars and people who has influenced me a lot in thinking about feminism, especially um, in the last, I would say, decade of my life, um, is Kimberly Crenshaw. And she's the person who coined this term intersectionality. So exactly what you're saying, this isn't, feminism is not a movement for white middle class people. Um, it is a movement for everybody. And if if we're not empowering people if we're if feminism isn't rooted in the empowerment of people who are people of color, people who are queer, uh, people who have all of these intersecting identities, um, then it's it's not doing its job. And um, as someone who is white and who grew up middle class, that is important for me to keep reminding myself of and keep looking for um, because racism is real in our society and classism is real in our society and homophobia is real in our society and attending to all of those identities is key. Um, now in the, in the pulpit and in the church, another thing I see, interestingly, I was just having a conversation with some of my friends about this, um, about toxic masculinity and what, uh, a hold that seems to have on our culture and what a hard subject it is to talk about because we're all steeped in um, societal norms around masculinity and femininity and what's expected and gender binary and all of this. Um, and then and then race and class play into that too, to, to that point. But anyway, um, we, we talked about Jesus as sort of the ultimate anti-toxic masculinity model of someone who broke his body 
for the world as someone who upheld vulnerability over um, the strength that the world would have had him as a male wield and who upheld this idea of kingship as um, breaking bread with people and walking alongside people instead of strong arming people with violence. Um, and I, I think that to me, that is a worldview shift that is also at the heart of intersectional feminism. And what we're affirming is to say, we want to look at people who have been left out of society. We want to look at people who have been oppressed by systems and uplift their stories and uplift their value. And that to me is exactly what Jesus did and exactly what I feel called um, as a leader in the church to also uplift um, and and uphold is sort of our ideal and something we want to strive toward as well. I think one of the challenges of what we're talking about right now is that I think increasingly it's something that we can teach that folks can get on board with intellectually, but it's really difficult to figure out how might we do church differently in light of this new knowledge that we have about gender, about race, about sexuality. And so how do you think church might look different? How do you think liturgy might look different if we take seriously the call of intersectional feminism? Hmm. That's a really good question. I think, again, just I'll say a couple of random thoughts and hopefully they'll, they'll come together. Um, I think, I wonder if some of our church, what we, what we think of as church might look different. And if, um, and I, I see this shift happening already and lots of people are having this conversation. Um, but are there ways in which we conceptualize that church is not just what happens in a building on Sunday morning between the hours of eight and noon, um, but that church is all of our entire lives? Like church is mostly actually Sunday noon to Saturday night. Um, it's mostly what we as people who identify as Christians and people of faith do in our lives and in the world. Um, and Sunday morning is a touch point for that, for sure. I, I hope it is anyway. And I hope that people are finding value and meaning in how they shape their lives based on those, those few hours. But I really hope that that isn't the only time that people are thinking about, huh, how are, how are my actions at play in the world and how are the things that I do contributing to or shaping some of the systems that are uplifting um, positive things in the world that are uplifting uh, people who need to be uplifted and tearing down the systems that are um, not empowering people who need to be uplifted. And then, uh, so how do I play into that in a systems way and in a sort of like daily life way? And the two are always intertwined. So I guess I'm trying to like strike a balance between it's not just like random acts of kindness and make the world a better, better place, though that is important to, to practice um, kindness and justice and walking humbly with God, to use the words of the prophet Amos in, in our daily lives. But then also, what, are, what is our role in these larger systems of um, 
education and economics and things where these where the rubber hits the road with a lot of these uh, different intersecting identities. So I guess for me as a, as a pastor, what that looks like is is helping people not separate their life at church from their life the rest of the week and to say actually who you are at church, who you are in your job, who you are in your family or as a parent or whatever other identities you have, all of those are intertwined and all of them can be talked about as one coherent whole. So we talk about that in our, in my context as sort of like vocation, like that's the definition of vocation is that you're not, you're not three separate people. You're not a person of faith and a family, the person you are in your family and the person you are at your job. That's actually one person. Um, and, and how do all of those things talk to each other? Yeah. I mean, I think that's something to just, how might we be changed by the influence of queer folks, of people of color, of, you know, increasingly, which I think is a gift, you know, truly just from the power of the Holy Spirit that we see so many women now being called to ministry and being ordained and serving in all sorts of different capacities from senior pastors to lay leaders, you know, all the way around And I think that if the church is open to it, open to hearing these new voices and to being changed by them, that we will see radical change and we won't see some of this hurt that you were describing earlier in our conversation. But I think it has yet to be seen. And I always think about, you know, you talked about Kimberly Crenshaw earlier, and I think one of the, you know, earlier Black feminists who's really thinking about difference and how women can talk to each other across lines of difference is Audre Lorde, mm. right? Who talks about of not just recreating patriarchy just with women this time. Yeah. And so I think we need to rethink the way that we exercise power. And I think that'll take us a lot of work because, you know, as you said about your conversation with your friends about toxic masculinity, it's something that we are just so often recreating and reproducing just because it's, you know, how our society runs. And so it'll be really fascinating to see how leaders like yourself will create completely alternative ways of doing ministry. Um, But that leads me to my final thought here. You have actually been really inspirational in the creation of this podcast, Race Spaces. And I would love for you just to tell us a little bit about the podcast that you have with some of the ministers that you know there in Uh, Minnesota, and it's called Alter Guild. Will you tell us a little bit more about what inspired that podcast and what it's all about? Yes. Yeah. So this is also um, a way based on, you know, out of what I just said about, you know, who are we beyond the two hours that we're at church a week on Sunday morning? I mean, I'm at church many more hours a week than that, but who who are we as a community um, of faith beyond those two hours on a Sunday morning. And that conversation arose with a couple of other um, young adults in in my synod, which is our sort of little gathering of churches in the Lutheran church. Um, we kind of all sat down for coffee one day and just said, how, how are people living out their faith? Or how, how, what are people craving in their faith lives um, after they leave church on Sunday? And what are ways to continue this conversation and have some of these conversations that aren't quote unquote church conversations, but just uh, conversations about faith and life. And there's some irreverence and there's um, some real talk. And so anyway, this this podcast, Alter Guild, A-L-T-E-R, a little play on words, 
um, was born from that conversation. So four of us pastors who are all in our 30s um, and juggling young children around trying to record these podcasts uh, decided we really wanted to interview and talk to um, people who are living out their faith in their lives. And that looks a lot of different ways. So we've interviewed people about um, choices they've made around schools for their children. We've interviewed people around um, life things like engagement and marriage and divorce. We've interviewed people um, around their identities. So uh, different ways that they think about who they are at their core. And thanks to you for being on that, that season. Uh, and that has been really, really rewarding and fruitful and has totally expanded my idea of what people's faith lives look like because they aren't just limited to two hours on a Sunday morning. I mean, obviously, I guess, but um, it's been really powerful to hear stories of what that has looked like for individuals. And I, every person I hear on that, on our podcast, I hear some of my own story in it and it um, deepens my understanding of my own faith too. So I'm so grateful to everyone who's, who's thinking so deeply about their faith inside and outside the church. I think we have so much to learn from each other. Um, and I just, I can't overstate the power of listening to one another's stories. That to me is, is what transforms me and what I hope will, will transform all of us. Beautiful. So Miriam, one of the things that we do here at Grace Spaces is at the end of each episode, we ask our guests to leave us with one or more Grace notes that they would like for our audience to carry with them over the course of the next month. So do you have any Grace notes that you would like to leave our Grace Spaces audience with? You know, as we've been talking, I have thought about um, just about sort of listening to one another's stories. I guess I would say that that's somewhat what our conversation has been about. I was thinking about something I learned um, in CPE, which stands for Clinical Pastoral Education. And um, we in seminary do this as a part of our training to become a pastor. So you do an internship as a chaplain um, in a hospital usually. And one thing I learned during this internship was my supervisor said, always listen to the story beneath the story. So, you know, I might've been visiting someone in a hospital room and they might've been um, complaining or talking about some anger. Um, and it might've even been directed toward me. But my supervisor said, always listen for what story is beneath that story. Is there loneliness? Is there fear? Um, is there isolation? Is there doubt? Is there shame? And that I think is the, the grace note I would leave with um, anyone who's listening this month is to, to listen to the story beneath the story, uh, to not, not let what's on the surface be the final word and to really hear what the other is saying. That practice has been really transformative for me. Not saying I always do it well. <laughs> I will totally own that. Um, but when I do, it, it changes the whole tone of a conversation. And, um, and I'm grateful for people who hold that same space for me. Thank you so much. And just to wrap up, please share with our listeners where they can find Alter Guild online. Yeah, so we are, I would say our, our largest social media presence, not that large, but uh, is, is probably on Instagram and it's Alter Guild, A-L-T-E-R, Guild Podcast. We're also on Facebook at Alter Guild. 
sometimes we tweet. You could occasionally find us there. Um, and you can download the podcast, just Alter Guild, again, A-L-T-E-R, Guild, uh, on iTunes or anywhere um, that you get podcasts. Great. Miriam, thank you so much for being our guest on this episode of Grace Spaces and for sharing your story. Grace Spaces listeners, this has been a conversation with Reverend Miriam Samuelson Roberts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Grace Spaces. Follow us on Instagram at ABC Grace Spaces. Until next time, go forth with faith, hope, and grace.